excited today looking at this continuing series of the rebel Jesus, looking at the way Jesus went against the grain. And today we're going to have an encounter that someone has with Jesus and doesn't recognize it at first who it is. And Jesus actually speaks to him from the heavens. And it's a, a clear example in the Bible where God intervenes in someone's life and changes the direction forever. And probably you've walked in here today with a variety of requests, variety of things in your life. You wonder if it can ever get through it. Uh, or maybe you're a recipient of where God intervened in a really incredible way and just turned things around. My life is a picture of, of turnaround. My life is a picture of where God intervened and changed everything relationships, uh, watching my childhood, watching, sitting with people in my office and watching people here at Grace, I get to hear story after story after story of how God did something that other people had given up on. And our God is really good at redeeming things that other people wouldn't give a second chance to. Are you glad for that today, by the way, that God is willing to do that? I know that I am. Yeah. Praise God for that. About two years ago, I found myself on a, a team here from Grace. It was our first time into China. We were smuggling Bibles and we wanted to take Bibles into a a country that um, was underground with Christianity. In the area that we were at, if you were found with the Bible, a Christian uh, as a Chinese national, it could be a capital offense. And you could, you could go to jail for the rest of your life, and in some cases, um, could, your life could be taken from you. And so the Bible is a very precious um, item for a, a Chinese Christian to have that's underground. So much that they'd be willing to uh, have one in their hand, and if they found, be willing to stand up and even go to prison for it. We don't understand that here in the States. But they're under persecution. There's certain provinces in China where that's, where that's true. In the provinces that we found ourselves in, that was the case. And so while we were there, we were able to visit an underground church. And literally, we're at an underground church where they valued the Word of God so much that they were willing to, to come at a university at a moment's notice. And were able to, I was able to preach an underground church. And they were able to bring their Bibles. And they knew they potentially could get in trouble for that by the law. But each day we would get up and we'd pray together as a team. We'd pray. We'd had a, we were staying in this uh, guest hotel and there were boxes of Bibles. And you would take these Bibles, you put them in your backpack. So I grabbed my Adidas backpack, put it in there and you'd put them in. The other teammates would put theirs in their, their backpacks and we would pray, God, I pray that you'd get us through the border. God, I pray that you would cover us. I pray that you would blind the eyes of these guards at the border that are standing there with their machine guns. And I pray, God, that by your grace, you'll get us through because we want the word of God to get to uh, these Chinese Christians. And so you would pack up, you'd pray, and you'd begin this journey. For me, I'd throw my iPod in and listen to some music, uh, Christian music, and you'd jump on a, a train, travel on this train, and you wouldn't talk to teammates. Sometimes you walk by yourself or you went with another individual. And so you get to the border, and as you get off this train, you get to the border, you felt this sense of, wow, I need God's protection in an unusual way. And so there was the border. You stand there and you throw out your passport and you go through a variety of stops. And the last stop you were at, they looked at your passport and you knew on your back there were Bibles on your back. And sometimes you would see a teammate standing in line. You wouldn't acknowledge him, but you would begin to pray under your breath, God, protect them. And then you would look ahead and there was the border, the Chinese border. And there stood these Chinese guards that were standing in front of monitors, 12-inch monitors, and in these monitors, they could see what was in packages. And so as you walk by, they would determine who they would call and randomly say, you in the red shirt. And you'd point at you and they'd th say, throw your package on the scanning machine. So you would take either the one that you were carrying or the one on your back, drop it on the scanning machine and just pray like crazy that somehow they didn't see that in the monitors that they were looking at. So it was an unbelievable journey of risk for Christ, 
physically. Once you walk through there, you found yourselves in downtown China. You get on the other side, and there's a part of you just want to go, yeah, but you didn't. You, you didn't want to make, who's that crazy American that's over there? So every time they come through, they're like, yeah. Anyhow, you would point out and see people along the way. You would see your teammates, and you say, I meet you by the, the flagpole on the other side. And you would walk along. It's like you were in a movie, and you wouldn't talk to them. You acknowledge them, and then slowly they get up, and they'd walk with you 10, 15 feet behind you. Walk to a hotel. You get to a hotel. At the end of this hotel, you would jump on an elevator, and we were on the 7th, 8th, ninth floor. I don't remember the floor. And so you'd press the button, and you made certain that you didn't talk to anybody because you didn't know there was undercover Chinese uh, policemen. And you would stand on this elevator, and you couldn't wait to get to this room. And finally, your floor would beep, and you'd walk off, and you'd walk. I remember walking down this long hallway, knock on the door, and inside of this room was a Chinese Christian national. Barely spoke any English, but he understood what was taking place. Walk in the room, and you're just praising God that you made it. You unload your Bibles, and then he would immediately put them in a box and tape them up. And then you would wait for other teammates while you were there. You'd wait on them. And eventually, hopefully, they made it too. And if there was a long elapse of time, time was elapsed, you would begin praying. Maybe something happened. Maybe they got interrogated. Maybe whatever. But finally, you'd make this full circle. It took about two hours. And on a good day, really, really good day, you could make four trips. Begin early in the morning and go to 11, 12 o'clock at night. On one of these journeys, I found myself on this elevator. And as I was on this elevator, it opened up and I walked in and there was this... this this African-American man, and I noticed that he had an uh, Oakland Raiders football jersey on. And really strong-looking guy. He looked like a football player. looked like an athlete. And you di I didn't want to engage him because I wasn't certain who he was. And there he stood on this elevator. And I, I recall looking at him and just thinking, man, should I know him? I should know this guy. He looked just... Anyhow, walked off. He got off his floor. I got off mine and went down. And we walked out. And I asked one of my teammates, I believe it was Walt, I said, man, did you notice that guy on the elevator there? And he said, did. I said, I wonder if he's a football player for the LA Raiders. And so we made the circle, and that thought stuck in my mind. And one of the journeys we made back, either that night or the next evening, I think it was the next day, I was walking through, handed my Bibles off, came back down and leaving, and I noticed we were waiting for some teammates outside the hotel, and I looked over, and there stood that guy again. And the Spirit of God just prompted, he said, Jim, you need to go talk to him. I was like, I need to talk to him. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. It's just like, you need to go talk to this guy. And so we're standing out in this courtyard, and I walked over, and I had to be careful what you say because I didn't know whether he was undercover, and you're very careful with who you communicate and what you say. So I walked over to him, and I just began some small talk. He began small talk, and immediately I began to realize he wasn't telling me, giving me full disclosure on anything, nor was I giving him full disclosure. He asked us why we were there, and I said, well... We're here, and we're just checking out the city, and um, we have a group here, and think this is a great city. And I asked him why he was there. He said his wife was a hairstylist, and he was, he was selling uh, hair locks over there and looking for a business. So we began to talk, and I began to see his eyes. I saw this kindness in his eyes, and hopefully saw that in my eyes. And there was a sense of this guy is more, it's more than this. Anyhow, we began to talk, and I found out. He asked us what we're doing. I found out that he was there also visiting underground churches in China. And he was there that morning, and he had a couple places that he was visiting, and we went on to tell him that we were smuggling Bibles underground, and we were visiting some underground churches, and that God had placed us there. And then he began to tear up. I wondered, for a variety of reasons, why he began to tear up. And I recognized tears were running down his face, and we began to talk. He says, let me tell you something, Jim. He gave me his name. He was from L.A., and he was a, um, a, a pastor. And um, he said, let me tell you something. He said, I woke up this morning... 
I was in my hotel room. He said, I've been discouraged, and I've, I've, I wondered if, if God wants me here, he wants me to continue this ministry, and he said, I've felt lonely, I'm away from my family, it's been a couple weeks, and went on to tell these things where he was just kind of just in one of those moments where he just needed God to, to know that God was real. He said, so I prayed, I said, dear God, you need to send me someone today to know, let me know that you are here and that you are real. And in the middle of this, middle of this Chinese, big, crazy city, hundreds of thousands of people stood this guy, and he looked at me and he says, and you're that answer to my prayer. I remember the next trip through, as we were coming back through, and we're hit, I was walking up, and I was getting ready to get on the elevator again, and I, I saw him again, and he was going up to his floor, and I was carrying Bibles up on my back, and my floor became before his did to get off. And I remember thinking, I just need to tell this guy goodbye. I mean, I might not ever see him again. And as I walked out the elevator door, I walked out, I turned around, stuck my hand in the door, and he reached his hand through the door, and as the door was closing, we shook hands and we looked at each other eyeball to eyeball, and we didn't have to say a word, but we knew who we were and who God was. I never forget that moment, because the odds for that taking place are just off the charts. Now begin to think about that. Someone from New Paris, Indiana, that pastors at Goshen, Indiana, meets a guy from L.A. at the exact time that he's praying on the other side of the world so that this guy could know that God was real and he was there. Our God can do things that we cannot even fathom or imagine. And sometimes we give up way too early. We give up on people, and some of you have done that today. Some of you have given up in relationships. Some of you have given up in marriages. Some of you have given up on people because this laundry list of their past, or maybe they've done something to you, and yet our God wants to redeem things that we don't give a second or third or fourth chance to. I want you to grab your Bibles, and I'm going to give you an example of that in Scripture. Grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts. Turn to Acts, Acts chapter 7. Turn to Acts chapter 7, and I'm going to show you an example of where God intervened in and he gave someone a chance that shouldn't have had a chance and that many had given up on. Yet God says, I want to redeem this situation and redeem this person. Turn to Acts. If you need a Bible, hold your hand up. Ushers will put one in your hand. And if you need a Bible, take that Bible home with you. It's yours to keep. If you don't need it, just drop it off at the doors on the way out. But turn to Acts chapter 7 and look at verse 59. And when you find that, stand with me. We're going to read it together. We're going to read Acts chapter 7 and verse 59 through Acts chapter 8 and verse 1. Acts 7, 59 through Acts 8 and verse 1. Let's read that passage together today to set up this incredible story of God intervening. Let's read Acts 7, 59 through 8, 1. Ready, read. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. You may have a seat, but look at 8.1 on your way down and put, look, put your eyes back on the text. Who was there giving approval to Stephen's death? What's his name? Saul. Saul was there and said, okay, kill him. It's okay. He's a, he's a follower of the way. I want you to, to go ahead and let this happen. Saul was there saying, it's a good thing. Kill this Christian. Make sure he's stoned. Put him out. Saul was there. The text says Saul was there. So it's obvious right away that Saul is anti-God. Saul is against followers of the way. Saul is against those who claim themselves to be followers of Jesus Christ. Yet God has a way 
to get our attention when others can't. Jesus has a way of doing that. He has a way of getting your attention and getting my attention when, when others can't get that. I want you to turn now to Acts chapter 9 and verse 1. Now, Acts chapter 9 and verse 1. So now we know Saul is anti-God. Saul is, is one of those people who didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Saul was a very intelligent person, very heady person. He had he was, he, he, he was known for his intelligence and known for, for being on top of things. And yet somehow he missed this picture that Jesus was who he said he was. And he believed that he wasn't so much that he went after the people who said they were Christ's followers. And so meanwhile, it says this in Acts chapter 9 and verse 1. Look what it says here. Acts 9 and verse 1. Meanwhile, Paul was still breathing out what kind of threats? What does it say? Murderous threats. Against whom? The Lord's disciples. So he's saying, hey, kill them. Wipe them out, just like you did with Stephen. So this, if you're a Christian and Saul's in your neighborhood, you either run or you stand up and die. And so Saul is breathing out murderous threats. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So he goes and gets permission. I'm going to Damascus. If I find any of these crazy lunatic Christians, I want to get them out of here because we don't need this country full of Christ followers. Jesus was not the Messiah. So he didn't believe that he was resurrected. So he believed strongly in his heart. What he was doing was right. He was anti-Jesus. Up to this point, he was the enemy of God. Saul didn't have any kind of relationship or a personal relationship with Jesus. And if you would have said, hey, there's your next preacher, Hey, there he is. There's the next leader of the Christian church. Everyone would have laughed. Everyone would have said, not even laughed, they said, he doesn't deserve it. He's killed my brother. He's killed my sister, my aunt, my uncle, my cousin. He's a murderer. There's no way. He doesn't deserve the grace of God. I wonder how many times we've unwillingly thought that in our heads and willingly thought the same thing. They don't deserve that. They did this to me. They did that. And you walk around with all this bitterness and somehow we believe we're the people who determine whether or not that person should be redeemed or saved by God. And some in this room today carry bitterness and harbor anger against people from the past because they did this and they did that and they don't deserve it. Grace grace is exactly stepping into a situation where someone gets something that they totally don't deserve. And our God is so good at doing that. And here's an example of a person, in a lot of minds, people say, there's no way Saul would ever convert. There is no way he would ever convert to Christ. He was so far on the other side that people hated him, and he hated them. One thing to keep in mind as you and I walk through this life, nothing, absolutely nothing is impossible for God. Absolutely nothing. Saul is about to get a peek in his life and a picture of this God who he said is still dead in the grave. Look at, his, look at the next verse in verse 3, chapter 9 and verse 3. Look what it says next. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? You and I read this, and some of us are familiar with this text, but you're walking down this path. He's going, he has this list, this approval, that he can get Christians. And on his way, he gets blinded by this light, and then he hears this voice. Now, he's never heard the voice of God. And so out of the heavens comes this voice, and this voice is, why do you persecute me? Or maybe it was Southern. Maybe God, when we get there, says, hey, come on in. I don't know how God talked, but he heard the voice. He heard it. 
We have this picture. Whatever voice comes to mind, maybe it's Charlton Heston. I don't know what it is, but he spoke. There it is. And so he heard this voice he never heard before, and he says, why do you keep persecuting me? Now, this wasn't a regular occurrence for a man who hated Jesus. Meanwhile, he can't see. He's blinded. So picture this posture. It's like this. And then this voice out of the heavens. And everyone that was with him, that was following him, also heard. And they knew that something was up because they never heard that voice before. And this voice says, why, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Would that get your attention? You might think, boy, was that bad pizza last night? Or what, did, you, did you hear what I hear? I mean, think about what it was running through their minds at this time. They had never encountered Jesus like this before. This encounter changed his posture. Look what happens next. Now, think, Paul was a tough man. He would say, yeah, kill him, yeah, kill him. He was brutal, and he was known for that. I mean, you did not let people know that around him that you were a Christ follower, or he would have you snuffed out. And now Jesus has him on his knees, blinded in front of him, and saying, hey, why do you persecute me? And then it says this in verse 5. Paul says, Saul says, who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up, go in the city, and you will be told what you must do. Now, this is a tough guy. This is a guy you didn't mess with. But I tell you, after he heard this voice from heaven and he saw this bright light, he was probably like, whatever you say. I mean, picture that moment in time for him. Jesus says, you will do what I say you will do. He wasn't used to being ordered around, but in this moment of time, Jesus intervenes and his life is about to change in a dramatic way. Get up and do what I tell you to do. In a matter of moments, Saul was headed as the chief of enemies of Jesus. He was going to Damascus to gather these followers of the way to take them to Jerusalem and to have them snuffed out. And Jesus diverts his path with this encounter and he's blinded and this voice from heaven comes. Everything changed for Saul in this moment of time. You see, when sinful people encounter a holy God, there's a lot of stuff that can happen. I wish you and I could go back to the day when we responded to Christ and gave our lives to Christ. Some have these dramatic life changes. In fact, I know a few. I know my, my dad. I watched, you, you know his story. My father, when he came to Christ when I was 18 years old, it was a dramatic life change. Alcoholic, 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 rolling rock every weekend. And the moment he came to Christ, he never drank again. Unbelievable, unbelievable turn in his life. It's like Jesus intervened and cleaned stuff up. Now he had other struggles. But in his life, it was a radical transformation. And Saul's about to experience a radical transformation. So radical that it got the attention. It'd be like me wearing Notre Dame apparel today to preach in. That would be radical transformation. It would. You know it would. And by the way, next year, November 12th, Maryland plays Notre Dame in football. And I can't wait to that Saturday. Especially that Sunday, if Maryland would win. Wouldn't that be a sweet day at Grace Community Church? <laughs> well, stop. I'm not even divert any further. Anyhow, that would be a radical transformation. In this case, it was very radical transformation. Look what happens next, verse 7. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. You bet they did. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. So they're speechless. They're like, dude, did you hear what I heard? Hey, did I hear that? Did you hear that? I mean, it's like, he didn't say much. And so they're probably thinking, what was that? And they're speechless because they had never encountered a living God like this before. 
Can you imagine the muttering as they're blinded by this light? It says they're speechless. They weren't certain what was taking place either. But they knew something was changing and something was changing quickly. Then it says this. Look next. Look what it says in verse 8. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could not see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Now, it's hard for us sometimes to wrap our minds about what's taking place, but this is the elite of the elite. This is the pride of the pride. In fact, this is the one who, who never had problems, who would never admit. He was, his pride just overcame his body, and now he's being led by his hand because he's blind into Damascus. It's a picture of a prideful person being humbled in a moment of time, and his men are like, what's going on here? God intervene is about to change the direction of his life forever. Picture that scene, tough Saul, the murderer of Christians now being led by the hand because he can't see because he encountered God. You see, things can change overnight with Jesus. Saul has a change of plans. Let's see, I should kill Christians. Now he's like, I'm going to do whatever that voice told me to do. I'm going to go because he just put scales in my eyes and I can't see. I better listen. Look how God communicates and Jesus communicates to Saul. Read on here in verse 10. Look what it says. In Damascus, there was a disciple named whom? What's the disciple's name? Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him. Go to the house of Judas on what street? What's the street? Straight street. And ask for a man from Tarsus named what? Saul. For he is praying. Now, think for a second here. Ananias was a bright person. Anybody living during this time knew who Saul was. I mean, his name would appear on CNN Jerusalem. There he was. There he is again. He was at Stephen's death. Look, there he is. He's chasing down Christians. I mean, he was, a, he was a public figure. Ananias knew who he was. Word had got out on Jerusalem internet that Saul was going to Damascus. Ananias knew that. Saul was a, was, was in, was a danger to Christians. And now he gets this vision. It says this, The Lord said to him, Go to the house on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. Two things are wrong with this picture. Saul doesn't pray. Second thing, don't get near Saul. Because if you get near Saul, you're dead meat. So imagine, wait a minute, God, are you sure? I'm not going there. Are you sure you got the right Saul? Are you sure it isn't Maul? You want me to go see Saul? No, God, say that one more time. Picture what was running through this man's mind as and he says, now go to the house on Straight Street. And it says in the vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. So not only does he have to go there, Saul has even seen, he's seen a vision. But in this vision, there's Ananias, whatever he looks like. He's got hands on him and he's healing him. Now Jesus is saying, not only do I want you to go there, I want you to go and lay your hands on him and heal him. I'll go there and heal him. I mean, think about what he was thinking prior to this morning. I mean, his cousins, second cousins, maybe a brother or sister was persecuted, and they were in jail, and now God says, I want you to go there. He's in trouble. He can't see. Put some salve in his eye. I'll put salve in his eye. Think about the emotion that must have been running through Ananias because Saul was anti-Jesus. 
Yet God spoke to him. And Ananias responds. Look at verse 13. It says, in a vision, he had seen a man named Ananias. Saul saw that in verse 14. And then verse 13, read on. It says, Lord Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. In other words, are you sure? Is it Baal, Maul, or Saul you want me to go to? I mean, he knew this. He says, I've heard the reports. And then verse 14, it says, and he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who come on your name. Are you sure you want me to go and lay my hands on him and heal him? God, this is our chance. We can knock out the enemy. I'll do everything, but can you imagine what he was thinking in this moment? It says he's heard the reports. In other words, he's questioning, are you sure this is what you want me to do? Then it says this in verse 15. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument. Now stop for a second, just pause, just pause. Think of the most horrible person that you can ever imagine. Person who's done something horrible to someone that you know. Person who is so anti-God. Person who laughs at Christianity. Maybe it's an atheist. Maybe it's someone who, who has done something just, just, just absolutely insane to someone. And now God says, comes to you and says, hey, that guy that you hate, that woman that you hate, who has a track record of sin, maybe, maybe by the name of this name and that name, I, that's my chosen instrument. I want you to go to have a, a huddle and pray for him and say, Jesus loves you. Now, this was hard. Now, let's back up. Suppose you were called to find Osama bin Laden, and you were the person that God told you where he's at. I want you to go there because he's converting and he's, he's been reading his Bible over in the caves and he now is a Christ follower. I want you to go and love on him and say, God bless you. Would you? I mean, it's so foreign. It was so foreign to this country that this is your chosen instrument, Saul? Come on, God. What about faithful Bob over here and faithful Millie over here who reads every day and studies and, and, and spends time sharing their faith? That's a chosen instrument, not the person who killed half Christians in this community. See, here's what's different about us and God. God can look at people and see them for the potential they can be in him. And he is willing to forgive us whatever we've done and cleanse us and press us on and be used by him. Now that's grace. And truth be known, sin is sin. Every one of us falls short of the glory of God by our sin. And if Christ didn't intervene in our lives, we would never see Christ either. We would never see God because he's the sacrifice for us. So I love this passage. He says, this is, man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. See, he saw the potential in Saul and gave him a chance even though his life included murder and evil. That's where we struggle. Let's be really honest. It's really difficult for some of us not to freeze people in their past. Oh, I remember they were like in high school. Wow, I can't believe they go to Grace Community Church. I remember when I worked with him. Oh, he was horrible. Oh, I remember when I, I did this with him and she said that. And so you see him today and there's this part of us that just, we, we can't get it out of our memory banks. We just freeze frame them. And so every part of us says, they're not a chosen instrument. They could never be used by God. They greeted me today at Grace Community Church. I remember when they did drugs with me. 
And somehow in our minds, it's like we throw this past in their face, and Jesus is saying, I died for that, I forgive them, let's move on. And that's what's happening right here in an unusual way. God is about to intervene into a man's life that's not deserving of grace. Now, right now, Ananias is like, he's, you can see he's wrestling here. Like, God, are you sure? I mean, can we even ask God that question? Absolutely, he's sure. You see, weird stuff happens when people encounter Jesus. You cannot spend time with Jesus without being touched in some way. Same for Saul. Verse 17, then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Now, this, was, this wasn't easy for him because the human side of him had to say, boy, I hope I heard God, or I hope I saw God in that vision, right? Woo! I hope it wasn't like, oh, man, I hope it wasn't something that was, wasn't clear to me. And so he walks into the house of the slayer of Christians, placed his hands on Saul, and he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And in verse 18, it says this, immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and he was baptized. <laughs> Come on, church. Think about this. Now, just in the world we live in with technology, now just, just give you a really, really, really wild example of Osama bin Laden. They find him and you find out he's been reading in the dark. You find out that, okay? And immediately he gets saved. Just something you do when you communicate. You go with the flow. Anyhow. Find out there he is. And he just, you find out he's saved. And this picture comes on CNN. And they show this guy, this Christian who's intervening. And they show him dunking him, baptizing him. Wait a minute. What's wrong with this picture? That's what's happening here. Not only is it weird... In some people's minds, he doesn't deserve grace. But do any of us deserve grace? Seriously, do we? No. And that's what grace is, getting something we don't deserve. And so there's this picture. Not only does he, his eyes are healed, but he gets baptized. And after talking, after taking some food, he regained his strength, it said. And in 72 hours... He has this order in his hand to go to Damascus. I'm going to kill Tim, Sally, Phil, Bobby, and I can't wait. And in a matter of seconds, his life is radically changed in other direction. He gets rid of his hit list, and now he's praising God. Hey, where are those Christians? Let me tell you what Jesus did for me. How many people do you think would accept him right away? Well, let's just see what happens. Do you think it, it would change the way people would look at him? Remind yourself how many times we have been, have encountered Jesus and he's done stuff for us that we shouldn't receive and we've been extended grace. The unthinkable is about to happen, church. I mean, it, it really is the unthinkable. Look on here, it says, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus, it says in verse 19. At once he began to what? What's it say in verse 20? Preach, come on. After like three days. He, you know, he's walking on this path to Damascus. He's going to kill some Christians. He's got the hit list. Light comes down. He gives his life to God. Ananias walks in. He spends a couple days. And on Sunday morning, you walk into Grace Community Church. There's Osama bin Laden preaching. Come on. Something's wrong, isn't it? Wait a minute. Did I walk into the wrong church or what? Imagine. You're a Christian. You're walking into this synagogue. 
And you're walking in and, and you remember Saul and you've been praying that somehow God will stop Saul, that God would... That, that God would stop this enemy and you've been praying, I'm sure they were praying, God, please protect us from Saul and his people and you walk in on a Sunday morning and, and, the, and the, the preacher comes up, hey, we got a guest speaker today. Let me introduce Mr. Saul of Tarsus. Can you imagine? Woo! Can you imagine as he began to speak wondering, is he going to come out after us? And when he began to speak, the spirit of God was in him and they heard stuff they'd never heard. Would you trust him in that moment? Yet, don't we do that with people that we're skeptical of? Oh, they got saved. Yeah, they got saved on Christmas Eve, but just give them six months, then I'll trust them. Oh, yeah, he says he loves Jesus, so I love Jesus too. Let's just see. We'll give him a year, maybe two years, and maybe three years, but I'll never trust him with this because he did this to me and she did that to me, and yet we do the very same stuff all the time. Look what happens next. At once he began to preach in the synagogue that Jesus is the Son of God. Look at verse 21. All those who heard him were what? What's your Bible say? You bet they were. Wouldn't you be astonished? And they ask, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And I bet they ask it in the, in the, in the pews. Isn't he the man who raised havoc? What's he doing here? Who let him in? And it says, and hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? In other words, we're in trouble. Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that whom is the Christ? Jesus is the Christ. After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. Boy, they turned quickly, didn't they? Well, if you're going to follow Jesus, then we're just going to take you out. Amazing what's taking place here. Look what happens next in verse 24. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close walk on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through the opening in the wall. I love how immediately when he began to preach, people saw his heart and the spirit bore witness that he was a Christ follower and immediately he has disciples. Now that took guts to follow him. Then it says this, verse 26. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. Now listen, he's on his way there to Jerusalem. And so they hadn't gotten the full picture yet, by the way. They couldn't send a text message like we can, and they didn't jump on Facebook and say, hey, Saul's coming, he's a new man. They weren't able to see that. And so, but they were all afraid of him. Why were they afraid? Because the news hadn't reached their corner of the world yet that Saul was a Christian. And the last report they got was the dead body that was sent in the casket. And now it says they were afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. That's not good news for someone who's supposed to be coming giving good news of Jesus Christ because they had been praying that God would protect them from him. But... Look what happens in verse 27. But, who's the guy? What's his name? Barnabas, the great encourager in the New Testament. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them 
and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. You see, one man became the bridge between these new disciples and says, hey, you can trust him. This is what I know took place. One man stood up and said, let's give the guy a chance. God gave him a chance, radically changed his life. Now you need to, mom. Now you need to, dad. Now you need to, sister. Now you need to, brother. Now you need to, friend. You need to give him a second chance because God intervened and he accepted that free gift just like you have and he deserves our acceptance. One man did that. While everyone else is like, whoa, Barnabas says, no, let's take him in. Instead of criticizing him and saying, I'm going to hold this past against him because he killed her and he killed him, he was willing to do what Jesus said, and our God is a God of grace. Oh, man, if we could hear the story, if I could open up and we could open up our minds of our lives and we replayed our lives for the last five years, there wouldn't be one of us who want to sit here and watch it because it's not very good looking at times. And yet somehow we pretend we got it all together. Look at us. Look, I'm here on Sunday morning. I am free to dance and no one dances. I am free to, to, to sing and everyone sings. And yet somehow we think if we have the outside together that the inside looks good too. And truth be known, it's probably some parts of our hearts that we're not proud of. But guess what? God came to redeem that. So instead of criticizing, Barnabas jumps in. And he says, let's receive him. Then it says this. When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. When the church, then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace, it was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. Here's what's beautiful about this picture. 13 books of our New Testament, or 66 books in the Bible. 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. 13 books of the New Testament are written by a man by the name of Paul who used to be Saul before Christ. He was God's chosen instrument and God redeemed him out of a murderous, sinful background and said, you know what? I want you to be my chosen instrument and I want you to write books of the Bible inspired by the Holy Spirit so that Grace Community Church could read them one day when they worship me. And only our God can do that with messed up cases. So that gives me hope today. That should give you hope today. That somehow we should never, ever give up on people. Never give up. God loves redeeming things that we have given up on. Now, is it easy for us to do that? I'm not pretending it's easy. I'm not going to say it's easy to let someone step back into your life that has done something to you. I'm not saying it's easy to, to place trust in someone that, that has a past or a history that God miraculously... I know there's wisdom involved there, but you at least got to be open to it. People have often asked me, Pastor Jim, how do you know when you've totally forgiven someone, fully forgiven someone? How do I know when I've fully forgiven someone? How do I know that I've fully forgiven my husband when I've fully forgiven my wife or my son or daughter or friend or boss or coworker? How do I know when I've fully forgiven my friend and neighbor when they've done this? How do I know? And I'll say this. The full cycle of forgiveness ends with this. When you, in your prayer time, can pray that God would bless the socks off of that individual, full freedom and full forgiveness has surfaced. Why? 
because you no longer hold the past against them, not only do you no longer hold the past and have bitterness, you're wishing God's best on them. You release them to God and say, God, they're yours. You do with them what is best. In fact, you bless them. That's when you come through the full cycle of forgiveness. When you can pray. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying you just wake up one day and, you, and after something's been done to you. But I'm saying the full cycle is when you release them to God and you've taken them out of your hand and saying, God, these are your people. You do what's best for them. I ask that you bless them. And when you do, there is unusual freedom for you and for them. So who is it in your life that you've given up on? Who is it in your life that you're harboring bitterness against? Who is it in your life? And right now you could think, if you really had to think, who comes to mind? They did this and she did that and you still carry that yucky, yucky, bitter feeling when their name surfaces in public. When you do, you haven't fully forgiven. God, help us today. God, you've given us an incredible picture of grace. God, you've given us an incredible picture of what you can do, that you can take the, the worst of the worst and you can radically change their lives. Oh God, I pray in this new year, help us God, please. Help us be people of grace. Help us be people who are willing to see not very far beyond our own sin and realize that we're recipients of grace. Help us, God, to see that, that people are valuable and that you died for everyone and that the gospel of Jesus Christ and the message itself is available to anyone who confesses you as Lord and Savior. God, may this be the year of breakthrough and may this be the year where the unthinkable and impossible happens with people that we have given up on. And God, may we see resurrections and marriages and may we see breakthroughs in families and may we see communities come back to you, God. Lord, do what you did for Saul. And may we be able to be like Barnabas and say, hey, good job, I trust you. All because of what Jesus has done in your life. Thank you, Jesus, for the way you resurrect lives. Thank you for the way that you save souls. And we rejoice because it's all about you, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. This Christmas Eve, we were able to experience people who who came from all walks of life, had three services here on Christmas Eve. And there were stories. We had families, individuals that brought people, 22 people in a bus to come for Christmas Eve services. Our God is so good at, at, at taking, taking situations that people have given up on. And I know some personal stories of some hopeless situations. When we walked away from here on Christmas Eve, the gospel was presented and there were testimonies shared. By God's grace, 50 people gave their lives to Jesus Christ on Christmas Eve services. Can we praise God for that? Can we praise God for that? I'm going to ask you to stand. Ask you to stand. And one of the things that we should do as a response to that is just worship as Pastor Jeremiah and Pastor Jeremy say all the time. It's a, it's a response to something. And you know, God intervened. Maybe you're, maybe you're that person you're in this room today. Let me tell you something. It's, we are thrilled that you're with us today. But God cares about those individuals so much that even on Christmas Eve services, no matter how they got here, Jesus intervened just like he did with Saul many years ago and the grace of God was shared and people responded. 
That requires a response from us. And we're about to sing a worship song that points back to who did it and how they did it and why we celebrate that. So in this song, this is a response to what God has done this year and what he did on Christmas Eve. So don't hold back. 